The most interesting writing comes from people who have a lot of bridges that they burn down. <laughs> Go to school, get married, have children, buy a house, you know, regular. Didn't really follow the path that way. So my name is Licia Canton, that's in English, Canton. In Italian, it's Canton, and in French, it's Canton. So anyway, Licia. I came to Montreal when I was four years old with my father and my mother and my younger sister. I left behind a rural, sunny setting where I had grandparents and cousins and uncles and aunts. That was in 1967. And we moved to Montreal North on Derecole Street to this basement apartment that was cold and gray. And we weren't allowed to go outside to play because it was dangerous. Cars went by and my parents were worried if we played outside. And we couldn't play in the yard because it, it belonged to the owner. He went in the yard. I always say that I was uprooted at a young age. And Having come to Canada with no relatives, I remained very much attached to my hometown of Cavarzere. And when my parents were able to send us back, my sister and I went back almost every summer. I consider myself a Montrealer. I love being in Montreal. I am grateful that my parents came to Montreal, but I'm also grateful that I come from a small town in Italy. And uh, both Montreal and that small town in rural Italy of the 1960s informs my writing. Yes, hello, my name is Kenneth Radu. I use two syllables on my book covers because it adds a certain gravitas. Otherwise, it's Ken, Ken Radu. I've been in the Montreal area for many years. I came here to take up a teaching job, first at Concordia, at a sessional lectureship in children's literature because I was doing my PhD work in Halifax on the history of the concept of children and the development of children's literature per se. And that stuff was really interesting. Uh, 17th century children's literature talking about four-year-olds being tortured to death to save them from sin. This was really gruesome. <laughs> but it's based on a concept and understanding of children that we no longer have today. But anyway, that's how I first came to Montreal. I started writing, I guess when I was 12 or 13, and then you, you move into the poetry phase as an adolescent. I am happy to say I moved out of that phase. Um, I no longer write poetry, and I wish that were true of a great many other people, but that's my own opinion. <laughs> uh, by the time I was 18, I wrote three novels. I wrote 18? several plays, 18, 18, yes, without a word of a lie, I wrote several plays. They were put on um, like Kiwanis Drama Festival, won one a prize. I thought I was going to theater. And then I started reading Jane Austen, God help me, I don't oh. know why, 18-year-old guy reading Jane Austen. And I fell in love and I said, oh my God, she's a smart lady. And I read all her works and I still read her works every year. Um, but then I decided, uh, I went to university and I said, I really want to do this. English literature as a major, history minor, host of other stuff. And that's all I did. And then my first 
publication was the uh, Stories for Children, published in an anthology, no longer exists, by W.J. Gage. I was 21. It's my first professional publication. I got $150 for it. Wow. You know, I was going to frame That's that. That's a lot of money. It was a lot of money then. then. Yes. I was going to frame that, but if I was too poor, $150. Wow. <laughs> that covered several weeks' rent, you know, $12 a week rent. But um, I stopped doing that. I just read. And then, you know, I got a scholarship to go to graduate school, and I was got more scholarships, and it didn't seem like work to me, and mm. I went to Dalhousie. Um, I started writing, coincidentally, when I came to Montreal, mm. and then I started with short stories, and through that, it just burgeoned, and now I write regularly. Montreal, to me, is, is a wondrous city, but it's a city I visit now rather than live in, because I really do prefer to be out of the light in the uh, darker corners. I like just being in the country. So I moved off island. I'm in the outskirts of a French village. No one knows I write. My neighbors are all uh, francophone. I was the only anglophone in the neighborhood, and I did not know how I would survive. But you do, because people are nice. The story I wish to read is called Old Money. And old means, it means two things here, as you'll see. Because my recent preoccupation, while recent, is as as writers get older, I think they're more conscious of aging as writers in the way we all are as we get older. But our subject matter changes. And I do have a pet peeve about writers. And um, to my mind, the most interesting writing comes from people who have a lot of bridges that they burned down, (laughs) (laughs) who have a past. Um, You know, young writers are exciting and and all that stuff, and they win all the prizes, bravo. But older writers just have a depth, have a resonance, have a a wit about them that I think is missing. They don't rely on special tricks, sensationalism, um, outre characters, Um, But that's just me. Anyway, my preoccupation is with aging and it's also with money. Because like, you know, quite honestly, I was a poor person (laughs) when I was a child. My family was poor. We were all poor. Everyone was poor. What we had in common was poverty. Um, And that affects you, obviously, (laughs) in one way or the other. But I was interested because as my, um, the older generation in my family die, as they all have, there is so much money that people are going to inherit eventually. And I, I've inherited some. Quite surprisingly, I had no idea. My mother left me enough money to put a down payment on my house. Mind you, it was a very cheap house in a place that no one else wants to live, so you can imagine <laughs> it wasn't very, very much. But any rate, this story is about teachers who are supposedly sophisticated, well-off, all of whom are of a certain age, all of whom have older parents, some of whom are very sick, some who are not, most of whom have money. And let's just uh, proceed. Old Money. Everyone's parents died sooner or later. But later was arousing anxieties among teachers gathered for an afternoon chat and coffee in their lounge. It seemed that daddies got a head start, well on their way to dust before joined by mommies. 
Three college teachers were talking about their ancient parents, not a living father among them. Not accurate, Cassandra of the math department corrected herself. Mediclair's father still breathed, his brain petrified by Alzheimer's for the last ten years. He didn't know anyone he once knew, not even himself. Mediclair described how the old man stared over a single candle on the cake that she and her mother had brought to the institution devoted to victims of mental incapacitation of one kind or another. We had to blow out the candle, poor dear. Her father, Réjean, sat in a chair, seeing but comprehending what exactly. To all intents and purposes, he was dead. That was how Cassandra saw it. For the past five years, her own mother was living in a quasi-luxurious retirement suite that drained her estate of a whopping $4,000 a month. Despite osteoporosis that degenerated her spine, shrunk her height, and crowded her internal organs, Cassandra's mother at 80 showed every sign of vitality and excessive longevity. After she sold the family home, she invested the proceeds, and along with insurance policies and the widow's share of my father's pension, she is managing well enough. Gracious, Bertrand piped up, famous for speaking the first thing that entered his less-than-disciplined mind. At that rate of expenditure, if she lives another ten years, your mother will wake up one day, her finances drained, and say, Dear me, I'm still alive, the rent's due, and I'm out of money. The teachers laughed, including Cassandra, who secretly winced under words sharp as a dire warning. Of course she loved her mother. Everybody loved their elderly mother, although they had fallen into the habit of gentle mockery and believed themselves exempt from ridicule. No one in the group favored euthanasia or voluntary suicide like the Dutch. Or, if they did, they weren't confessing. Unless extremity di dictated otherwise... Then, of course, compassion demanded compliance and merciful measures. Without terminal illness or appalling vacuity of mind, only a heartless child would suggest that one's mother, healthy in most regards except for some mild decrepitude, had lived long enough, that her antediluvian body was supported at the expense of her children's inheritance, which she risked depleting if she continued beyond normal expectations. So when it goes on for that, actually the character Cassandra leaves brochures in her mother's estate about uh, assisted dying in Switzerland. Um, <laughs> I read that. <laughs> so this piece is called Fresh Eggs and Polenta Chips, and it's part of a, a book I'm writing. It's a memoir about growing up Venetian in Montreal North. I cried on my fifth birthday in February 1968. There's a silent film of me in front of a big cake. My father is encouraging me to blow out the five candles, but all I can do is cry. Maybe it was the room full of people from our hometown, none of whom was related to me. Maybe I cried because the cake did not look like the one I had had on my fourth birthday. Maybe I was just unhappy after being uprooted and replanted in a foreign land at an early age. They say I was a talkative and adventurous child in Italy. 
But in Canada, I missed my grandparents and cousins. I missed the whole town full of people who knew who I was and who escorted me back home whenever I ventured to the piazza on my Graziella, the little white and blue bicycle I still have 50 years later. That bicycle was my freedom. I could go anywhere and I was safe. In Montreal, I was scooped up in a cold, tiny apartment. My parents wouldn't let me go out to play. Big cars went by fast, even on Derecolet Street, where we lived. I couldn't play in the backyard because it was reserved for the owner of the duplex who lived upstairs. I especially missed the foods that I was used to in Cavarzare, those my mother couldn't replicate. The bananas purchased at Steinberg's grocery store did not taste like the bananas in Italy. They were big and odorless. The oranges felt like plastic. They didn't taste right either. Cherries were hard to come by. My mother purchased red and green candy cherries one time. I still recall my frustration at the sight. That's not what I wanted. I did not say so because I was sure my mother had spent a pretty penny for them. She ended up making a cake with them. Mostly I missed my daily breakfast routine. I fed myself because my mother was busy with my baby sister, three years my junior. Every morning I went into the warm, smelly chicken coop. The rickety door alerted the chickens, and they all scattered about when I walked in. I looked into every nest before choosing my egg. It was always a little dirty, but very warm in my hand. Tap, tap. I cracked it open and drank it on the spot. Yes, there were eggs at Steinberg's and at the Dépanneur at the corner of Derecolet and Prior streets, just a short walk from our basement home. But they were cold and spotless, not what I was used to. My mother appeased me by making sbatutino. Back then, I also missed my grandmother's polenta crusts, e croste del paroio, as we call them in Venetian dialect. Every day, Nona Gemma made a big pot of polenta for her numerous family members. Once the huge polenta was laid out to be eaten, the residue dried up in the pot. She let me scrape the crusts. I liked the polenta chips more than the polenta. The chips were a treat for me. My mother made polenta in Montreal, but she did not have my grandmother's copper pot. There were no polenta chips to scrape off. I was disappointed whenever I saw the pot soaking in the sink. In the early years, every time I came back to Montreal after having vacationed in my hometown, I had to get used to the fruit again. For a long time, that bowl of fruit at the center of my mother's table provoked a sense of loss in me. That is no longer the case today. In recent years, I have seen similar bowls of fruit in the homes I visited in Italy. Italians, too, buy fruit at the supermarket. They also buy ready-made polenta. Even today, when I am sad or disappointed, I crave my mother's sbatutino. Of course, it is not the same color as the sbatutino she made for me with eggs from the chicken coop, but I cannot complain about my parents' decision to emigrate. I know now that it was the right decision. It gave us all a new beginning and many years of happiness. I have gotten over my sadness, and I am also grateful that my early childhood memories are so full. I did uh, write a book about my Romanian heritage. It was a mm. book of poetry, and it's called Romanian Sweet. The, the cover picture is Ceausescu's Palace, and I did go visit Romania, and I, I found my parents' ancestral village, 
And when I left, I said, oh, thank God they left. <laughs> <laughs> My sense of ancestry is more mythological rather than historical sociology. I wrote the book even before I went to Romania mm. because I do believe strongly it's better for a writer to imagine a situation first before living it. Was it uh, fiction, non-fiction? No, a collection of poems, related poems. Oh, poems there, it includes uh, mythological figures, a bridegroom who enters the church, the devil comes after her, which is forbidden, of course, for the devil to cross holy ground. Uh, Radu Lupu, the great Romanian pianist, has a role in it. All the Transylvanian stories <laughs> of Vlad have a role in it. Mamaliga. Uh, cornmeal, Romanian, speaking of food, there's a whole section about food, <laughs> the wedding feast, because like Italians, if you have a wedding, you better pay a lot of money for the food. But in the last analysis, I like to break free from that. I don't want to be defined by my heritage in any way whatsoever now. And one thing about coming to Quebec is that you, I remain on the outside. <laughs> We're in my village. It's interesting, people are friendly, I love living there, but it's not it's not really my home per se. There is, I don't feel at home anywhere. Mm. And as a writer, that's where I feel most at home. Uh, Romanian was my first language. Oh. And when I still remember to this day, I um, went to my mother and I was thirsty and I said, I want some water uh, in Romanian. And she slapped my wrist as I reached for the sink. And she says, don't speak Romanian. No one needs to hear that. You're, you know, you are in, you're going to an English school. Speaking. You must speak English. And that, you're, I just, I will not speak Romanian to you anymore. I don't know what overcame her. I was the last child in the house. And you can see it happening. The oldest child to this day is still fluent. Yeah. I actually went to Romania with my sister because she was a translator. Okay. But it's most curious, after two, three weeks there, I found myself being able to translate yes. and being picked up words. Well, you <laughs> came to a store and magazine elementar. Well, how could, <laughs> I mean, you know, a food store, what else could it mean? You know, elementar, you know, yes, and, yes, um, yes. and Romanian is so close to Italian. Yes. Every Romanian I met uh, spoke Italian. Okay. Well, I don't speak Romanian. No, well, there's no need to. <laughs> Either do I. So. But I had a different experience than you because uh, my first language, mother tongue, is the dialect from my hometown, which is a Venetian dialect specific to the town because from one town to the next 10 kilometers away, there are differences. And I still speak it with my parents and uh, sometimes okay, with my like, sister. Yeah. And my husband and I made an effort to speak Italian to our children, so they speak Italian. But they understand the Venetian dialect. Yeah. Apparently, when I get angry, it's true that I, I switch to Venetian. But then I, I learned French because mm. I went to uh, Marie Clarac, a private girls' school. We couldn't afford that, but my father's aunt was the directrice. I went there for um, kindergarten. And then they switched me over to English school because they thought they were going to move to Ontario. Okay. And we never moved to Ontario. So I actually only started speaking and reading and writing Italian, not the dialect, as a fourth language. So that's, uh, but I, I'm but That's, that's uh, I think, uh, symptomatic of many experiences in Montreal. I mean, it's a, it's a city of polyglots. Yeah, that's right. For instance, I taught um, an introduction to English composition class. So the majority of students who were in that class, it was one of the courses, the other, and I also taught Shakespeare, 
most of the students in the composition class were second language students, mm -hmm. but not second language students, third and fourth mm -hmm. language students. Yes. English was the lingo they picked up on the streets. You know, many of them were police technology students. Oh, okay. They spoke their langue maternelle, they, they spoke uh, French, of course, and they spoke what they were pleased to consider English. <laughs> you know, until, I'm sorry, my, I said, my job here is to correct you. <laughs> yes. okay. But that's what makes Montreal so interesting, except where, where I live now, is there's a kind of uh, unilingual quality mm. to it. English is spoken, though, but, for instance, my neighbor refuses to speak English. That, that happens. Um, he speaks, his English is better than my French, but he prides himself on not slipping into English when he speaks to me, mm. which is actually good for me. Well, uh, I live in Saint-Léonard. Okay. It has, a, I guess, at least 50% are of Italian heritage, but if you walk out onto the street, the first language I speak with my neighbors, my three neighbors, they're all francophones, so I speak French yes. right away. When I see yeah. an older person... I could tell that they're Italian. I speak Italian to them. They're always excited that someone is speaking Italian to them. And uh, when I go into the stores, I speak French. Or into the bank, I speak French. And uh, I guess they could tell from my accent, I don't speak like a Quebecoise de souche. So they switch to English, whether they're Francophone or Anglophone. Yeah, I get that know? too sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So, but, yeah. Uh, but with my accent is odd. Everyone says, well, where were you born? You know, first my, my name. Is, is not English name. Uh, he said, yeah, he said you, you, you're not English, are you? And I said, if, if by that you mean I speak English, <laughs> yes, I'm Anglophone. He said, because I can't tell by your accent where you come from. Uh, and there's no point in entering a debate. I said, why does that matter anymore? Yeah. You know, let's get over ourselves and move on. <laughs> I mean, what yeah. about as, as writers? Yes. Writing in English, primarily, yes. I'm assuming. Yes, um, uh, you said your mother tongue is Romanian. Yes. And your mother tongue is a dialect of Venetian. Yes. Um, at what point did you start writing and considering yourselves as writers in English? When did that happen well, for you? Definitely English is the language that I am most comfortable with. I do write in French and in Italian and in Venetian, this thing about you know speaking many languages, I, every day I feel like I'm translating for people or for myself. You know, when I'm writing in English, sometimes I just can't get it right, but I could get it in French mm. or in dialect. <laughs> so I've I've used you know French words and Italian words in my English language uh, writing. It was always English, I think, in English. Mm. French is still very much a self-conscious language. It's acquired in middle age, more or less, and it's, mm. you know, I don't have a facility for it. It does populate a lot of your stories, though. You well, do yeah, have the because I'm conscious of where I'm living. This was the, the politically uh, dynamic times in Quebec of the 70s and 80s, and I was very conscious of, well, where do I stand in relationship with this? I was very sympathetic. I have no problem at all with people being allowed to be who they are, to speak the language they wish to speak, but I still, to this day, I see myself essentially as a Canadian writer living in Quebec. You know, my parents were farmers in Saskatchewan. My mother lived in a sod hut dug out of the ground by her father. I have a sister in British Columbia, a son born in Saskatchewan, a daughter uh, born in Nova Scotia, and another child born here in Montreal. I cannot identify with one specific geographic area. And I don't like saying, you know, I'm a Montreal writer, 
Mm. Montreal's had enormous impact on me, mm. but it seems a bit dishonest for me to say that, mm-hmm. I feel. I'm sympathetic. I'm not leaving anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking for graveyards or crematoria <laughs> <laughs> that are conveniently located, but I mean, this is where, you know, je yeah. see. I consider myself a Montreal writer. I might even consider myself a, a Montreal writer from the north of Montreal area. I think my heritage and my experience with Francophone community, French neighbors, I'm very active in the Italian community now. I wasn't growing up. With my first book, Almond, Wine and Fertility, the stories are set in Italy and in Montreal. And in Montreal, specifically in areas that, in my mind, writing them were in Saint-Léonard or Montreal North area. Many of the characters, if not all of the characters, have a link with the Italian community Mm. or Italy Mm. as their heritage. And I I try to negotiate whatever issues I've dealt with growing up Italian in Montreal between the Francophones Mm -hmm. and the Anglophones. For instance, we talked before about what was it like 30 years ago. Well, I was a young woman in my 20s, and I was expected to follow a specific traditional path. You know, go to school, get married, have children, buy a house, you know, regular. Didn't really follow the path that way. Eventually, I did get married and have children, but I had a couple of detours. For instance, divorce in the 80s for the Italian community, for for my family, was like a big deal. And I was divorced. I left a, a husband back in Italy, and I deal with that in my stories. And now, you know, everybody's divorced. But back then, I didn't get invited to weddings because... They said, you know, it it would hurt me. But no, it was really because, you know, you weren't welcome. But I, I, you know, what we talked about, all of these things, the languages, the cultures, it's, it's all a richness. I embrace my heritage. I embrace, you know, watching Tout le monde en parle on Sunday nights. You know, like I like that living in Montreal is all of this. And uh, I also am happy to share that with the first generation who came here Mm. and the kids who don't know some of the things. For instance, recently I was watching this movie, 1981, about uh, an 11-year-old boy in uh, in Quebec who goes to a new school. And, you know, he he hangs out at Perrette after school and and drinks juices and stuff like that. And I remember Perret growing up, (laughs) you know, those kinds of local, the local Mm. color. One of uh, the old aunts who has passed away, but she used to come to Montreal regularly. She couldn't quite figure out what I do. You know, I was expected to become a doctor, lawyer, something that makes money, not a communications professional that doesn't, you know... (laughs) pay very much okay so when I went to visit back home um, apparently I was a banker because (laughs) bankers make a lot of money but you know to tell her you're a translator and editor a writer I'm in communications I help people publish their works it's hard to grasp and you know to monetize there is a sense you don't become a writer or a teacher for that matter or in the field you're in to make money and I think it has something to do with the pull of the imagination, the, 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 the incredible seductive power of just writing a sentence and saying, this is no good, this is better. It's something no one understands. I think maybe readers do. 
you know, those mm. who are passionate readers. Yeah. That is kind of an alternative reality. When I sit and write, I mean, you have to deal with everyday reality. You know, divorce, when in my case there is no divorce, nor did I ever feel the desire to divorce, so it didn't happen. Did I don't. I don't know what. I don't know. I don't know what causes it. My mother divorced, of course. A lot of people divorce, but I mean, it's it just happens, and people move on. But family tragedies, pain, whatever. I can just sit down and write, and you'd cease to be who you are. That's yes. the important thing. You become yeah. a kind of neutral presence. I don't believe for a moment suddenly mm. the characters speak to me and tell me what to write. That's nonsense. You know, I'm doing the speaking. They're all my creations or whatever. Uh, there's no one there telling me what to do. But d the act of doing it is worth more than money, which may explain that arguably my last book focuses so intensely on money. Oh. <laughs> I wanted to read this very short, short story, and the title is In Front of the Bell Center. She is a face in the crowd gathered here to look at me, but she doesn't belong in the crowd. She belongs right next to me. I know that she doesn't know where to be or what to do or what to say. She is just a helpless girl. She is in shock. She is traumatized. By now, she would have been sitting in the passenger seat as I drove us home. By now, we would have been on Sherbrooke Street, heading towards Pinaf Boulevard, in a rush to get home to get a few hours of sleep before the six o'clock alarm, before she would get on a bus, on a subway, to get to school where she would write her early morning exam. Will she make it tomorrow? I don't know where I'll be at 6 a.m. That's only six hours from now. I won't be there to make her breakfast or to wish her good luck on the exam. If I weren't lying here, unable to move, tomorrow before sunrise, I would be at the window watching as she walks to Lacordaire Boulevard to take the express bus, the 432 bus that takes her to the Cadillac subway station. I always lock the door after her and rush to the window to wave. She looks up as she walks by and gives me a big smile. Her lips purse into a kiss. She loves me. Now she is standing there. She has forgotten the shape of a smile. She is five feet away. No one here knows that she loves me. I am not supposed to be lying on my back on the cold sidewalk. I can feel the small gravel under my down coat, those little rocks that the city disseminates to keep pedestrians from slipping on the sidewalk. But I did not slip. That's not why I am lying here on Avenue des Canadiens de Montréal at the corner of Drummond, across the street from the Bell Centre. Strange faces staring down at me. I can hear the ambulance in the distance. It is getting closer. It is coming for me. I squeeze the stranger's hand. I have kids too, and I remember writing trying to get as much done as possible before mm. the yellow school bus came. <laughs> and 
trying to get, you know, an extra five minutes, but knowing that I needed the time to shift out of whatever I was writing. Some of the stories are very, they're all positive stories in the end, but some of them are very intense and I had to go somewhere else to write them. And I knew I had to come out of there and be smiley to welcome my kids home. And my writing has shifted since this book. And I don't have 10 books as an author. I only have one, but I have two more coming. Well, you will when you get to my age. Well, I had a detour. A lot of my writing recently is informed by an accident that I had in 2012. Writing became my way of dealing with depression. And in front of the Bell Center and because of Leonard Cohen are stories that come out of that, you know, uh, art therapy, writing therapy. And I'm, I'm really happy about that, that my writing has shifted. And that's why the second book of stories, which is coming out this year, has taken so long because I took a break because I needed to write about, you know, Leonard Cohen and getting hit by a car and uh, dealing with that and picking yourself up again. It's interesting. Um, You're in a car accident? I got hit by a car. I was outside of my car when I got hit. Because I was in a very serious car crash. um, And in order to deal with the consequences of that, and we still are to this day, I wrote a novel, novel. which was not published. But I think I wrote it for myself, in a way, to sort of work through what was really a a phenomenally uh, dynamic and transformative experience. I think I became different after that. Mm. A lot of things I believed in before, I ceased believing. I became impatient with the beliefs of many other people, especially someone who says to me, oh, your angel was watching over you, okay? I have no patience with such talk as that. But I can understand how writing, you know, giving you a few, you know, hit. Um, I was injured and my wife was uh, devastatingly injured. It's an awful kind of thing to deal with. And it's hard to find your way out. And people mean well, and they say the right things, and they help. They bring the polenta or, or do the dishes or what have you. But inside, it's never the same. You're altered. Yes. And writing that you know, very bad novel, actually, um, <laughs> I sent it to the agent. And she says, you wrote this, but you did not read it for anyone else to read. We just, you cannot, you're too close to everything. You're doing something else here. Therapy is not necessarily literature, yeah. you know, which I agree with um, a great deal. But I just find that rather interesting. I suspect that's true of a great many people, depending on the nature, the severity of the incident, mm. the crash, and so on. And it's the suddenness out mm. of nowhere, a perfect, perfect day. I don't know what your situation was. You're just not, you wake up, you're not expecting to be hit by a car or to be in a crash of any kind. And then your whole world, you know, bouleversement, right, is completely overturned. But I I think some of my strongest writing has come out of that writing. I think my writing is better because of it. Because I've let myself, uh, I've freed myself from things I no longer believe in. Or with things that might have been a chain or holding me back from what I wish to say. Uh, maybe whether it's a morality or it's a political belief or it's even human relationships. I have no hesitation to say to a relative, I don't really think we need to talk to each other anymore. Because I have never liked you. <laughs> and it's just simply 
blood genes, that's not enough. Mm -hmm. We have no relationship to speak of. Whereas before the accident, I would have maintained an artificial connection. I don't know if that was true well, in your case. Well, from my perspective, but you know, I grab every opportunity. I'll accept every invitation as long as I'm able to. Invitation mm -hmm. to go abroad, to read, to write on something that normally I wouldn't have done before. But it's fascinating to pick up new projects, to work with other people that perhaps I wasn't aware of existed before. For instance, I'm, I'm going to be reading at three readings with the, the Canadian Mental Health Association. That's something that, because of this new writing, I would never have done mm -hmm. before. And I'm really excited. And I've, you know, I've written about these stories. I consider them stories, even though they're based on my experience. But last year, I published a nonfiction piece, which is uh, Healing One Story at a Time, where I, I decided that I needed to say that this happened to me. Because, you know, well, for the physical, you know, my legs were broken, I couldn't walk. But I got myself back at 95%, mm -hmm. but I couldn't function. It was only after the physical was healed that I realized there was something else going on. Mm. And I come from a, a family, a culture where, you know, you just keep on going. You don't tell people. And I'm trying to change that too for, you know, my generation, my children's generation, and because of Leonard Cohen, is about someone who, who can't write a story that she was asked to write. And, you know, that, that came out of that, and I'm, I'm happy about that. I'm, I'm happy that something negative has opened up so many new opportunities, writing and other. Well, I mean, that's it's essentially, I mean, that's being open to the significance of any experience. It, I mean, all writers move in different paths. Now, if you write something that sparks interest in, you know, like the, did you say the Canadian Mental Health Association? Mm -hmm. Well, obviously you spoke a truth to them. They wish to explore with you and maybe, you know, the, the ambiance in which you read and the audience. It's going to be a particularly interesting for you. And out of that will come new material. Mm, but yes. by the same token, Proust did not leave his cork room. This experience can be actual and it can also be imaginary. And I think both are equally powerful for the writer. So there is no one prescription. Um, your life moves in the way that it moves and you have to deal with what happened. Yes, I appreciate and sympathize with the whole notion you had this terrible experience and we well, have to get on with it. You're given, what, 24 hours and that's enough grief. It's like tiresome people who say you shouldn't cry at a funeral. Well, come on. You have to cry at a funeral. I mean, grief is part of the experience. Mm. Why deny it? And then after that, you have... I only go to funerals for the food, speaking of food. Because you know, <laughs> if it's a good funeral, you're going to have a great feast afterwards. Because death holds no tears. <laughs> and then, you know, <laughs> any rate... Um, but as writers, you're also observers. As, I guess, and, in a way, yes. You know, it's... it's inescapable um, and whether you you feel as an outsider you can observe more I don't know faithfully to yourself or to your readers or however it is that the pieces get put together likewise uh, in a, a traumatic situation it may afford a new kind of perspective mm -hmm. both on yourself and the world around you so in your case it seems to have dislodged some um, a previous tolerance. <laughs> <laughs> I guess fair enough for it. I'm trying to put it let's gently. Say, let's say patience. <laughs> patience, yes. Not as patient as I used to be. 
Uh, and in your case, it, it's, it seems to have emboldened your desire to express what's happened yes. in, real, in real terms. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, I think, contrary to you, Ken, I think I'm more sensitive to people. The person who's having a tough time or who is not very friendly at customer service, we don't know what that person's dealing with. Yes, they shouldn't take it to work. That's true. But that person's only human, you know. So I, I, I uh, contrary to you, try to befriend the cashier who's oh, not being friendly. I think, but I think you misunderstand me. I'm the most popular person in the village. Because, oh, Monsieur Radzou, j'ai un carré pour toi at the Bureau de Poste. <laughs> to get to your, your point, um, however we approach it, mm. um, I'm not sure I would use the word sensitivity. I think percipients, we observe other people. Uh, yes, I think that's true of everybody, whether you want to or not. You just, as a writer or any artist, you just, you're constantly seeing. And then you might be, you know, the, the rude clerk. You might be able to say, well, what is going through his or her uh, mind to account for such behavior? But I will address it. I will okay. Thank you. Uh, I will speak But it. still, we observe it. We don't necessarily write about everything we observe, mm. but we collect. We have an encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm of perceptions, we have an encyclopedia of experiences which are not necessarily our own, but which we feed off because we live you know, our own lives, but we also live vicarious lives. We live to some degree imaginatively through the lives of others, which I think is implicit in your comment of um, sensitivity. I would um, use the word sensitivity, that's yeah, my yeah. word. Yeah. Mm. I guess is I'm deeply conscious of the presence of death. The car crash mm. brought me within an inch of losing my life. And it happened just out of the blue, just as yours. Mm. And, you know, given my age, I mean, we're not going to live forever. Time is short. And no, I might. <laughs> maybe, but time is short. And, uh, I but just you'll live I'm, forever through your writing. Well, if anyone reads it, perhaps. Uh, I don't even think in those terms. All I think is, I just enjoy doing it, and I quit teaching because this was more important to me at that time. Inside the Frozen Mammoth is created by the Association of English Language Publishers of Quebec and features writers published by our members. Interviews by Marianne Couture. Technical production and editing by Jess Glavina. Anna Leventhal is the executive producer. Original music by Pamela Hart. Cover art by Adam Waito. Thanks to the Canada Council for the Arts for supporting this project. For more information, visit aelaq.org.